Stories That Matter Studios. I'm Nance Haxton, and this is The Streets of Your Town, The Journo Project. This podcast is all about recognising great Australian journos, wherever they may be around the world. With the media in Australia under increasing attack and hard-won freedoms under threat, there's no better time to celebrate and highlight the work of the top journalists from down under. This episode of The Journo Project features one of the great stalwarts of Australian journalism, Walkley Award-winning television reporter Chris Reason. He has travelled the world telling stories, starting his life in journalism, delivering papers for the Redland Times in southeast Queensland's sleepy Bayside, before doing his cadetship at the Queensland Daily newspaper The Sun. He went on to become the youngest correspondent in Seven Network's history when he was posted to London. He's now Seven's chief reporter. His television reports are seen all over Australia, covering some of the toughest stories, such as the Boxing Day tsunami in Thailand and then Banda Aceh, the Fukushima nuclear disaster, Barack Obama's election, Nelson Mandela's funeral, and the September 11 terrorist attacks from on the ground in New York. In 2015, Chris Reason won the Graham Perkin Award for his coverage of the Lint Cafe siege. My name's Chris Reason, Chief Reporter for The Seven Network. Very, very excited to be talking to you today, Nance. I've been listening to the series. I love it. (laughs) Chris, thank you so much for joining us on The Journal Project. Pleasure to be here. Chris, here we are in the middle of Sydney, bustling, you know, we've got the beautiful Atmos. This, you can't deny that we are in the middle of the CBD in Sydney, just near Channel 7 of course, we've been based for years. Years and years, in fact next year is my 30th year and um, you know that's most of my adult life, and the majority of it and uh, certainly most of my working life and you know uh, some people call that um, uh, a privilege, others call it a sentence but it's been, <laughs> it's been good to me, it's been so good to me for so long and a lot of people say to me why do you still do it, well I still get a buzz out of it, it's still fun, you know, it's a it's a career like no other. There are so many jobs and so many of my contemporaries that left school and went into law, into medicine, into this private business, whatever, that sit in offices, that have a very routine, same, same life day after day. I never know what I'm going to be doing tomorrow. I never know what I'm going to be doing this afternoon, tonight. The day can change, the whole uh, the story assignment can change, and so can the excitement and the fun. It's, well, it's even this good. afternoon, you've squeezed me in as a story cancelled. We are living the life of journalism on the edge right now. Absolutely, and a special <laughs> day today. I mean, it's Walkleys tonight, so yes. it's a day to celebrate good journalism. And I love going to the Walkleys and seeing what's done year after year. I judge them frequently. I judge again this year, and. It's staggering how good the quality of the trade is in this country. There are some extraordinary journalists around us. Well, it's great to see that you're still obviously excited by the, the game. Do you still see yourself as that hack ultimately? Or yeah, how do you see totally. And, and the more I listen to your podcast, the more I think that because it's, um, I'm in news. I've been stuck in news on this one roundabout, if you like, for, you know, as I say, 30 plus years. And uh, I look at the great investigative journalists you've talked to and, and the long-form journos, Adele and Willisie and kind of think, I'd love to do long-form. I've always wanted to do it, but there's something about news. There's an adrenaline hit to news that I, I love. I started in newspapers, the ink still, I think, in the veins a bit, and moved to television. I saw that, Chris, at the Redland Times. 
great old newspaper. Well, you know how I actually started the Redland Times, Nance? I used to deliver the bloody thing. So my, my brother had the newspaper round in my suburb and, um, and he went on holidays to Europe with mum and dad. I was in the middle of exams so I couldn't go. This was high school years and so I offered to do the round for him. And after doing the round and starting to get to know the people at the paper, the small paper, only staff of about eight or ten people, it clicked in me. I, I saw something there I enjoyed. I went back and did work experience and eventually uh, got a job there. And that began the journalism you career. Were building contacts even then, Chris, before you knew what building contacts was. Well, absolutely. And, and was important to build them, important to start them, and, and there were people in my life back then that gave me that leg up, that saw the enthusiasm, saw something and said, okay, you should try here and, and you should go there. And I jumped around a little bit when I was younger, as you should as a young journo, I try and encourage all young journos to do it. I try and encourage people not to follow my career path, to, because it's good to get variety, it's good to move around, it's good to know the country better, uh, it's good to know different formats better, television, newspapers, radio, digital, and I think if there's any mistakes I've made it's possibly that that I haven't moved around enough not that I'm critical in any way of what I've had it's been a great ride well, so you, far you took quite early on though so you went from Redlands Times and you're a Queensland boy mm. we should mention as well you might have been in Sydney 30 years but are you still at Queensland boy I love getting back there and my family's still there and um, whenever I can but Sydney's where for me the news action has been it's HQ and it's where the decisions are made and you know you want to be able to get an assignment, you want to be able to just be within spitting distance of your news editor's uh, office and be able to be able to hear what's going on in news planning and jump into it and be involved and, and take advantage of those things. And I have for many years and managed to get some great assignments over that time. But Miss Brisbane... Does it affect your world view, do you think, having that Queensland upbringing? I think in a, in a good way, because I think Queensland is a little bit more, a lot more regional than um, than Sydney is. Sydney's the big smoke. Sydney's an overcrowded, overpopulated, struggling city on so many levels. It's good to have had grounding in a far smaller place. And I was out of suburban Brisbane and the Redland Times, down in the Redland Bay area there, and went from there to the Sun newspaper. and classic tabloid started as morning moved to an afternoon Back in while the I was afternoon, there paper day. Oh, and crime reporter which you would never I forget loved that crime. You 5 were years really of lucky it. to see that it was Chris. it was great and part of it well the, the, the amazing thing about the sun and for all Brisbane expats and they, they realized this it was built on top of a famous pub called the empire <laughs> and um, i used to have to walk through the front bar to get to the elevators well i told myself that anyway developed a real problem with alcohol i've got to say but at the end of the day that was part of the game part of the trade and particularly for a police reporter I I loved police reporting I loved crime and at a time when the Fitzgerald inquiry was kicking off and Chris Masters was doing all his wonderful work on one side and I gotta say I went the other way and I always looked to do this in journalism it was something I can pass on as a tip if the pack is moving one way look to go the other way and back then I started tapping the crime figures on the shoulder, the Jerry Bellinos, the Hector Happeters, all these great crime names, even the corrupt police commissioner, Terry Lewis, and said, look, no one else is talking to you, I want to talk to you. And they started talking to me, and I got a series of great scoops and exclusives and inside, most of them, I'm sure, untrue, but it was fascinating to listen to their side of the story and what they uh, did and tried to explain away their situation. But 
it's a it's not a bad way to roll and that's how I got my start in crime news before I eventually got picked up by TV and it's important for balance as well that great journalistic principle isn't it to hear and so many people don't do it now. No. It, it disappoints me and, and and you know there's a there's a for want of a better phrase, the do-gooder parade in journalism, that, 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 you know, very worthy, very admirable, very focused on one particular side of a story, an outcome of a story, but stories are never one-dimensional. You, you know that better than everybody. It's, it, it, there are multiple facets and sides. It's and not just two sides, Chris? Absolutely, there's more. <laughs> and if you can get the other side, then it's an, there's an obligation there to chase it. And even if the person is the most horrendous dislike criminal uh, I think it's worth chasing that down I remember getting once a great yarn I loved it anyway with a pedophile who turned into a murderer and um, he was uh, found convicted sentenced and I'd been following the story for a while and I managed to get into Bogger Road jail to go and visit him and talk to him face to face he didn't know who I was I just listed my name down didn't declare I was a journalist who was getting around the authorities at the time but a bit cheeky but um but had this extraordinary exclusive with this um pedophile murderer which and uh, wasn't trying to make excuses for him wasn't trying to give him uh any platform but i just wanted to get a little bit more sense of who he was and what the motivations were and for a large part of my career at least back then that was a, a modus operandi for me look for another way so it sounds like that grounding in print really has stood you in good stead. It's a great way to start a journalism career. I wouldn't take anything away from my colleagues in television or radio, two very different mediums. But newspapers, from the collegiate value of a, a newspaper floor where there are dozens and dozens, hundreds of journalists, uh, newspaper, you know, TV and radio newsrooms are far smaller. Uh, to be in a big environment like that, you, you do a lot more. You can file three, four, five stories a day potentially, you know, in a smaller newspaper. On a bigger newspaper, one or two, you know, and and you just get more journalism done. I hate to admit that. I hope this is just between you and I, and maybe the, you know, a couple of journos listening, but with TV, there's so much logistics in play. You get the story, you get into the car, you drive to the story, you get the, the, the lights out of the car, you set the camera up, you do the interview, you put all the stuff back in the car, you drive to the next interview. You might get two or three interviews done. With newspapers, you're sitting at your desk, you can go through 20, 30 phone calls and really get to know and drill into that story. It's a great way to learn the craft and a great way to immerse in the craft and also to see others doing it around you. Far more numbers, as I say, than there would be in other uh, electronic newsrooms. Are you hopeful that newspapers can survive? I would love newspapers to survive. I, I know and I, uh, it, to my core that people need information and need stories about us, about the world around them, about their own community. And I'm, I'm confident that media will survive this onslaught that we're all being hammered by at the moment. The question will be at what form will we tell those stories. The printed newspaper doesn't look hopeful, I don't think. But you know, you know, I looked at my own example. The old days, I'd get out of bed, run to the curb, grab the papers, come back inside, pour through them. These days, I reach across to the tablet beside my bed. I don't even get out of bed, and I download the printed form of the paper and read it each day. And and in some form or another, there will be stories told. And I hope that that can continue to uh, go on uh, through years and decades beyond us now. 
and of course from newspapers soon after that. The UK was lucky enough to get the London Bureau from Channel mm. 7 and that was a great honour. I was so wet behind the ears. I couldn't believe I got that, um, that gig and I was too young. I say it now. If I ever become a news director, I will never send someone that young and that... Um, I'd only had 18 months in television when they sent me. It was a great um, show of faith from them, but it was stupid. And uh, But I went and I did as best I could and we had an amazing time. And I went on to become bureau chief there and it was four great years, four formative years. Foreign corresponding is a place where you really do learn. And I talk about being in a, in a newspaper environment and seeing journos around you. When you go to a foreign bureau, you see how, in particular a place like London, New York, Washington, LA, you, you see how the rest of the world, you're, just, you're immersed in far more media outlets. In, in London in the day when I was there, there were 13 newspapers a day and I used to get them all. And it's 20 kilos of newspapers would turn up on my front door every day and, and I'd have pleasure in thumbing through them, having a look and you know, scanning for that word Australia, looking for um, Australian angles and any local stories every day. It was a great time. It was, uh, it was a fascinating time, marked by everything from the Bosnian War to a lot of um, royal scandal, the collapse of Charles and Diane and her eventually fateful death, which still... What an incredible day, time to be there, Chris. It was. It was a, 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 and, and still, people ask me what the biggest story I've covered is, and I always laugh when I answer that, you know, top three was Princess Diana's death. It just really mm-hmm. still, to this day, was a staggeringly large story. I've never seen a developed Western country like that stop in its tracks and people by the million turn out on streets to to pay tribute and men women children sobbing standing there sobbing i couldn't believe what i was seeing i still have never seen that sort of emotional outpouring even with some of the massive industrial scale grief that i've witnessed from the boxing day tsunami fukushima 9 11. Uh, it just that day one single person dying creating that much emotional energy i've never seen anything like it just extraordinary so london was a great time for me and i i learned heaps i came back and life changed a lot it become you sort of go well i've been a correspondent now now what and it, it that is, big question. it must be a very difficult dilemma is it for mm. when you've come back from it is. the foreign correspondency? You just don't think anything's worthy of you anymore and you kind of think, do I really want to go back to lo- local journalism? It was, it was a hard argument to go through, I'm sure multiple foreign correspondents have, have, uh, have had to endure that process, but I did go through it on a very personal level and, and I thought about what was important, I thought about what got me into the craft and it was stories. Now whether the stories are you know, in the Middle East or Bosnia or, or you know, tabloid London or, or back home, it didn't really matter and I was just happy to to tell them and I went on to become the network correspondent and that was that's been a great ride as it's uh, you know 25 years of doing that now they call me chief reporter now and it's sort of the title change I answer to a lot of different names but it's it's been great fun it's been some extraordinary assignments in that time what are the differences between the stress levels that you get at these natural disasters that you've reported from but also the war zones I mean are they comparable are they totally different how do you as a journalist approach things yeah it's it's, it's funny being that that news journalist genre you, you I always call it parachute journalism you fly in you drop in you try and make sense of something you try and engage with people you're tapping into the possibly the worst moment in their life you're trying to tell their story in, in minimal time with minimal research and little background on the ground 
but you're doing it in good faith, you're doing it the best you can, and you're doing it to try and explain what's happening on the ground to an audience back here that might not have time to listen, might not have the engagement there or interest. And the job of the journalist, I think, in so many ways, is to, is to make the story engaging, is to simplify the issues, to bring the power, in my case, of television. And I worshipped newspapers earlier in the interview, but, but television is incomparable when it comes to delivering emotional power, to see fear in people's faces, to see tragedy in their eyes, to see and hear their stories of what they've been through. Nothing can do it like television. Power of a great still photo is fantastic, but give me a, a good cameraman any day because we will deliver information far more powerfully than, than newspapers and radio ever can. And it's fun and an honor to be given that responsibility. I, I, you know, trekked around the world doing it for so long now and, and you know and the, and the story list is just has just been phenomenal it, it, Thai cave rescue Nelson Mandela's death and funeral Princess dies the various conflicts in the Middle East uh, the Boxing Day tsunami it just goes on and on and it's 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 a difficult job in some ways but it's a it's a great one and so many others it must come at a bit of a personal toll though does it Chris how do you cope with that cumulative toll of seeing such suffering I'm wondering when it's gonna hit me because I've read a little bit about um, journalists and uh, and PTSD and um, spoken to some and it hasn't yet I, I, I my father was a policeman and I was a crime reporter and I, I don't know, I, I've always put myself in the same psychological headspace perhaps as, as those types of people, the, the first responders. The, they've got a job to do. And I, you know, I'm not saying our job's anywhere near as important as an ambulance, paramedic, police officer, fire brigade. But at the end of the day, it is a critically important job. It's behind those front rows, but you get there and you need to be able to pull yourself together. You need to be able to deliver that information. People are going to make decisions, life decisions based on that. Governments are going to make decisions based potentially on the reports that you file, whether from in here or overseas. The role of the journalist is critical. And so I've always said I will push through it and put feelings like that aside, deal with them later, and you try to. You talk about it, download with other journos and traditional getting around a beer and, and all of that sort of thing. But to this point, yeah, I've been able to manage those uh, those incidents and tragedies. I suppose in some ways we are the first responder in that we're quite often the first people to see these disasters. It must be, how do you tell that story to bring it home to an Australian perspective and show people the the magnitude of something like the Boxing Day Tsunami. Yeah, well that, that was really hard to do and it, you can get into a situation like that and face confusion yourself and, and you have to make decisions, you have to make assignments, you have to, you've got a team around you, you, you try and as a senior journalist I'll say well you do that, you do that, I'll take care of this and and you carve up the story and into, you know after doing it for a while you can see patterns forming. And, and in fact, one of the, the things I have to do with myself now is not to fall into cliched responses and to make sure I don't just go straight back to, oh, I did that, you know, I've done a cyclone before, I'll pull out the 1976 version and, and go from there. You need to be, every story is different. Every story has to be told in its own way. But it's, uh, I guess, experience helps. I, I, I look back to the first time I went to Bosnia and we happened to be we were actually in Croatia at the time, and the, I don't know for those that remember 
early 90s, massive bomb in a marketplace in Sarajevo. The US decided to get involved and the boss rang me and said, where are you? I said, I'm in Croatia, picking up a, um, an accreditation from the United Nations to go to Bosnia. Eventually, he said, well, you're going now, so get in there. Um, this marketplace thing has happened. So we raced to Italy, which was the closest place to be able to get onto a plane, a British Air Force plane. I had nothing with me, no flak jacket, no jumpers, it was freezing cold, I think, at the time, anyway. N none of the, no water purification tablets, no no boots, no all the things I, I now take with me as standard operational gear into a situation like that. We were at Fumicino Airport, looking around for things we could take and buy. You know what we ended up taking? 20 kilos of Swiss chocolate. I, it was. It sounds ridiculous. It was ridiculous. We turned up. We could only take 20 kilos on this British Air Force um, C-130 Hercules, and uh, we had the camera, the tripod. We had the tripod, and then I put my bag on it, and the loadmaster opened it up and said, "You're fucking kidding, aren't you? What are you going to do? Open a sweet shop?" <laughs> and um, and uh, anyway, so I went in with nothing more than 20 kilos of Swiss chocolate, and surprisingly it's funny I'm funny how far you can get with Swiss chocolate in a war zone it's actually pretty valuable Max Utrich the great uh, ABC journo saw me and helped me out but I was wet behind the ears 25 26 or something had no idea in a war zone first time there with all this chocolate and um, and and not little idea so quick lessons he, Chris. A quick lesson and but people helped and people like Max and others who reached out got me accommodation put me in touch with people and and off we went and I survived. Chris, and I think here we are, of course, in Sydney at Mar near Martin Place, and I, it just takes me to one of the other stories that you're so well known for your coverage of, the Lint Cafe Siege. And talk us through how, how that went that day and how close that is to where you work as well. Yeah, well, as the sirens go off beside us. The, yeah. the, the extraordinary thing about that story, Nancy, is that you know, I've, I've travelled thousands and thousands of kilometres in my career and possibly one of the biggest stories in my life happens 30 metres from my desk. And it was, it was the day I came into work, because I'd just come back, that, that first day back after six months off. I'd had long service leave, taken the family around the world, we'd backpacked all through some wonderful places, and we finally came back home, and I came into work, and I looked around that newsroom, and I've got to say, I was hit by a wave of middle-age depression. I thought, God, I'm back again, nothing's changed. Do I really want to keep doing this? And I slammed the bag down on the, on the bench, and I said, I'm going to go for a coffee. And I went to the cafe next door. I could have walked into Lint. It's one of two cafes within 20, 30 metres of the front door, and I went to the other one, Bond Cafe, and I'm sitting there, and I noticed suddenly, people sprinting past the doors and I raced outside and of course what do journos do when people are sprinting one way you run towards where they're sprinting from and uh, and police were pushing me back and saying you know what was happening in the in the cafe and so began a an extraordinary day an extraordinary day I raced in and jumped on the news desk at that time and they said can you start hosting rolling coverage and we started hosting rolling coverage and uh, within 10 minutes of doing that the police were in the studio most AFP style and kicking us out of the studio and saying this place isn't safe and for those that don't know Martin Place the Sunrise Studios are 100% glass, glass walls, glass ceiling, if that place shatters with a bomb uh, it's it's all over. So the police evacuated the building, 200 or 150 staff I think we've got at Channel 7 there and so we were kicked out but I continued broadcasting on the street outside. My one of my very close friends and great, um, a great, exceptional cameraman, still can't understand why I didn't win the Walkley for camera that year, but that's another story. We can talk about that tonight. Um, <laughs> Greg Parker managed to 
talk his way back into the building, pretended to be a security guard doing a final sweep of the building to make sure no one else was left inside. And what he was actually doing was setting up a camera on the third floor, uh, the fourth floor in fact, just looking across and out the windows towards Link Cafe and he was changing the batteries when suddenly a policeman put his hand on his shoulder and said, what are you doing in here? And he said, oh mate, I'm just uh, adjusting this camera. And that policeman then said, oh, what can you see? And he showed him and the cop then said, well, I'm with, I'm a sniper. Uh, this is probably the best place for me to set up. Would you mind staying here with me? And uh, I'll use your camera to see where this gunman is. And so began Greg's time inside that cafe. We worked the phones and eventually they let uh, myself in there with him to stand beside him and the sniper on that fourth floor. And so it was, uh, the three of us there on that uh, balcony. I was told I could only go in for one cross for 6pm and then get out. I did that cross, I looked around, no one asked me to leave, I wasn't going to volunteer, I stayed and so we stayed all, way, all the way through the night and it was horrific, Nance, it was, it was a really hard one. You won the George Munster Award for it, I just want to commend you for that because these are difficult stories to tell. You're right there in the thick of it. You're seeing horrendous things. And to, to get that award, I just think, is a commendation to you, Chris, that you were able to tell that in a powerful way. It, well, thank you, Nancy. And, you know, it, anybody would have done it. I, 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 I say that sincerely. You, you get a journalist, get us an opportunity to be in the right place at the right time. And that really was, you know, what it was. And treat it with dignity and respect, to treat it, you know, in the way it needed to be treated, I think was important. It was harrowing from a personal level. And I think when you talk about emotional responses, that's probably been one of the most difficult stories I've had to do. Not at the time, because at the time we genuinely thought that, we all knew, man, Monos, we thought he'd be talked out. He was a nutcase and we'd seen him around the city before. And it was, yeah, okay. And I'd actually kicked off the shoes and I was gonna lie down on the couch beside the other side of the sniper and have a sleep. And um, and Greg said, mate, there's something happening. And it was just before two o'clock and, um, you know, the rest as it played out, 2.13 was the AM was the shot that claimed Tory's life. And to hear that shot and to know what happened and the sniper beside us saying, window two, hostage down, um, and then began the extraordinary response by police piling in and taking him out. Um, uh, it was difficult and then getting to know those hostages. I've been speaking to one today actually. So you're still in touch? Still in touch. It's it's a difficult one. It's the first case of terrorism in the city and um, it obviously was one that stopped not only the city but the, the country as well. Uh, it, 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 on so many levels it was an awful thing to have to report but again I believe it had to be reported and it was important that it be reported and, and that we learn lessons from it and examine it and look at things. We look at things like Deborah Snow's book into, the, uh, into the, the play that day, the way the police handled the situation, important lessons learned, the coronial inquest, just extraordinary lessons by the police after a monumental series of failures on, on so many levels that you hope that, you know, that we might have learned something from that. But that was one of the most difficult days. We really are on the front line of history, aren't we? That first, first draft, as they say. It is, and and that's an important. You know, we, we throw that line around, don't we, a lot, and um, and I certainly have in the past, and but I've enjoyed having that that front row ticket. But there are responsibilities that come with it, and you've got to treat that role seriously. And I, I've repeated that theme, I know, through these 30 minutes, but it's an important one for us to know and be reminded of. And I think a lot of the time that the community has got a bit of disconnect with that. A lot, a lot of community don't trust us anymore and have problems with media and journalists. 
and we've got to fight to get some of that back. Well, how do we make that connection again, Chris, do you um, think? Particularly, press freedom is such a big debate. It, it is, and I think that's helping. I think the, that, that campaign has been a remarkable one. We're given most of us spend our times, you know, tearing each other's throats out. We can't we compete so viciously and and for, you know ferociously with it with other news outlets? But on right, this one issue, at the war please, we call it all up for one night. For one night, exactly. <laughs> that's right. But but oh, but and but also for this campaign, we call it off for this campaign. That's true. And mm. and we've all come together and watching what my colleagues, particularly in the newspapers, because let's face it, that issue isn't going to sell papers. That issue is is, is a labour of love from the editors. That's They're putting true. it in there to to remind audiences of what's at stake and so much is at stake and you can't tell me that the banks would have inquired internally you can't tell me old people's homes would have you know investigated themselves you can't tell me that the great work that Kate McClymont does and Adele and all those great investigators would be done by agencies governments it has to be done by the fourth estate and and that's why it's so important and that's the investigation side but not to dismiss what I do, you know, news is, is important to people. People need to know stuff. Interest rate movements, petrol prices, crimes, rapes, murders in suburbs, all of those important things that have to be reported to allow us to go about our daily lives and respond the right way. Journalism plays a role in that. How do we, is a legislation needed or what do you think to protect I think um, I'm liking all the signs I see so far. I applaud the CEOs of the media companies for taking the fight on and standing steadfast and, and I'm surprised by it. I think it's just been exceptional. And as I say, the editors as well, it would be great and I think almost it needs to be done. We need, we need protections, we need support, um, legislative support. We don't have it constitutionally, we don't have any a Bill of Rights. We don't have the protections that so many other countries have in this country. It's a massive oversight. And, and to watch what the ABC is um, fighting at the moment with the AFP raids and in court watching their defence, you know, they've got this tenuous link to this possible um, line of the Constitution which implies a protection of political freedom and therefore the federal option gun. God damn it, we need it to be written in black and white to protect um, our press freedoms. And you've been reporting on that too, of course, Chris. Yes. Well, I was in the mm -hmm. court case uh, last month watching mm -hmm. the ABC try and fight that fight. And I get a, it's the worst trap you can fall into with a journo is trying to read a judge's body language, but we all love doing it. And I thought the ABC was damned. I, I, the judge was not responding to a lot of what they were arguing, but it's, it's folly to do that. But but I hope, we're waiting on that decision now, I hope that something comes down for the ABC. But, but to better it, it would be better. It would be far better if the government came down and rubber stamped those press freedoms because they're incredibly important. Even the minutiae kind of example, Channel 7 experienced themselves back in 2014 when the fake federal police raided our offices over a silly little uh, alleged signed deal with Chappelle Corby. Now, federal cops running into our offices, into the CEO's offices and rifling through paperwork, contracts, financially, looking for evidence of that. What country are we living in? It was just extraordinary. And finally, I think these ones obviously far more serious crimes, far more serious matters from the AFP, but the response has been outstanding. And I hope and pray that something substantive comes from it. I really feel like you're at the juncture of it, Chris, because you know, we've spoken about the Lynch siege and terrorism. I mean, in some ways you can see why the federal government has responded with all the legislation they have, but 
really has it come to that tipping point? Apparently Australia has the most anti-terrorism legislation in the world. It, it, uh, and now how do we pull that back? I don't know how we pull it back. I think it's too late. Mm. I, I, think, um, I think we've gone into this dangerous path. And you can see it daily. I mean, the... One of the greatest and clearest examples for me was the refugee issue over the last, you know, what, five, six, seven years now, watching um, the secrecy over boat arrivals, for instance, the secrecy over Manus. And, and detention centres. Just yeah. go, how can that be? You know, I've got people, journalists, mates, ringing me and emailing me from overseas saying, why don't you just go to Manus and check it out? Right? You can't. <laughs> you know, it just, and it's embarrassing to say it. Mm. And I'm going... Why do we have that in this country? And that we've got a massive task in, in trying to convince the public to come on our side. I heard some of your journalists saying that they, that they think that the public is on side. I don't think they are. I think for most people, they don't care. And uh, we've got to try and gently encourage them to care because these things are terribly important. And um, we need that change. Well, and you mentioned the Fitzgerald inquiry there, Chris. It's not that long ago. I wonder. To me, it just there, there are echoes of history here that we need to remind people of, that it's not that long ago where the division between the state and judiciary and government and police they just collapsed, and that's what happened. Yeah, that's right. Those lines blur, and it was just fascinating to grow up in Queensland and watch that. And I you know, once protested on the streets uh, on a Joe Bjorki-Peterson um, uh, era, and and thinking to myself, you know, it was a scary time as a teenager, excuse me, to um, to be in around at that, that time, a university student, and sort of thinking, wow, this is, it was, uh, there were a lot of lessons to learn from the Bjorki Peterson era, a lot of lessons to learn, and, and we saw a lot of them come to fruition with the Fitzgerald inquiry and the changes that came as a result of that, good, positive, wholesome changes that you know, that, that, that happened. And I think maybe on a federal level, we need to be looking at similar because Australia on so many levels is in a, a dangerous place, uh, a dangerous place of secrecy and darkness. And I think it would be great if the community could, could just have a look at this, open their eyes to it, be cognizant of it, because it's, uh, it's not just journalism at stake. But a lot of normal, uh, community, citizens, freedoms. Really? You think democracy is at stake? No, no, no of course not. I mean, we're, 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 you know, we're a healthy, vibrant country and democracy, but I just think there's, there's you know, uh, the right to know is a, is, a, is a major issue. It's a major issue. And, and having a government and a bureaucracy that's more open than it is, is fundamentally important. If we can enshrine some sort of protection for media to, to let that happen, would be more than a good thing. How has reporting changed in the time that you've been in, particularly even in television? I mean, we've got the live era, this relentless 24-hour cycle. It's, it's, it's sped up so much, and, and I've been lucky enough to be able to see, you know, from a 30, 35-year span of how that, how that has changed. But it's just the speed and pace with which it moves now staggers me. And there's consequences to that, of course. But it, I, I look at, and when I go on foreign assignments myself, but when I look particularly at the young bureau guys we've got now who are just amazing, their output and their energy, they have to be to be able to keep up with the three or four hours of sunrise in the morning all the way through our news programs during the day to the latest night and be pumping out stuff online for the social media content. Um, it's just incredible. When I was in the London Bureau, we had a 
uh, a 10 minute window, the satellite was open once a day. And that was it. We'd file to that deadline, send it, and if it would, it'd have to be an enormous story for us to have to open up another satellite. It was about uh, 2,000 bucks uh, for a 10 minute window. So it had to be important for us to do that. Now, it's as easy as switching on a mobile phone and they can send stories through their little backpack units, their TVUs and Tejeros. The curse of that is that a news editor can ring you at any time and expect you to file at any time. The wonder of it is that you can file at any time and you can file from anywhere pretty much on the planet. You know, the days of... Um, I remember being up with Hugh Remington in Papua New Guinea on a um, tsunami story and we were getting our tapes out by asking helicopter pilots to take them back to the main base and those days long gone uh, and probably good but there are pitfalls with what's happening now. Our guys are strapped to cameras so long I just wonder and for so much of the day, do they get the chance to dig into a story? Do they get the chance to know people, to interrogate officials, to go beyond the reach of a camera and actually go and fish for news and angles and depth and substance? That and seems that's to be the, the hard part. The challenge now of social, the social media age too, really, isn't it? Yeah. That time to reflect. That, there's none, and and the speed moves on, and 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 and, and that's something. Yeah, it's a really good point. I remember we went when we went to the Boxing Day tsunami reference had a couple of times now but we were there for a month when I went to 9-11 I was there for two months yeah. nowadays we'll go to a big story at day three or four you know the news editor will be saying okay time to move and the attention span I don't think that's a media thing that's a, that's a community mm. thing it's that's reflecting our audience. Yeah, the expectation we can see the numbers we're, we're absolutely sensitive to that we know the audience we know when they're switching off and we make those decisions based on data and it's just a, a reflection of the society that we have become that must have been incredible that, that's when the world changed it was really, and, to, be and there. to be fair I mean I you know I I I was here when it happened and we were actually having, we had a news band and we were having a rehearsal that night in Balmain and, um, and the phone started ringing and off we went. But I went into the studio for the first time and hosted and that's what gave me three days of rolling news coverage, just sitting there for eight hours in the chair and, and, and that was an exceptional learning curve. I just never had been experienced or anything like that before and, and it, was, it was a great opportunity to learn about studio craft and, and it got me the job a couple of months later of hosting Sunrise but interestingly I, I jumped on the plane and flew over to the United States and I spent most of the time in Los Angeles filing and covering and went to New York and filed and covered and came back after a couple of months but what I'd done was I'd missed a cancer check at that time and I didn't even think about it until the following September. September was my annual uh, month to check up on these things and I thought oh shit I missed last year's checkup, race to the doctors and the news was bad all sorts of tumours riddled through my abdomen and um, I had to sign off the Sunrise show on that September in 2002 and go into some fairly heavy treatment, operations, chemotherapy, six months of fighting for my life. So in that sense, almost cost me my life as well. It also gave me a new life. It also gave me a new vision and a new view on, you know, all the things that are almost cliched, but looking at, at the way life should be led, the important things, new values, all of those sorts of things. It was a great learning curve on that front as well. I was lucky enough, obviously, to pull through that with great help from medical team and family and, and friends, and that was an extraordinary time in my life. We're so glad that you pulled through, Chris. I mean, there's some lessons <laughs> there over Joe Don't don't give everything to the to, job, to the, and it, it's very easy it's to do that, responding to a community in shock and just all that 
fascinating material all around you, don't forget yourself. You really have to pull your head out of the story occasionally and look up and around and look at the loved ones close to you and remember that they're looked after and look after your own situation and, you know, and yes, your health as well. It's critically important. I, that was a major stuff up on my behalf. It could have cost me my life and I got another chance. So, yeah, important lesson. It's important lesson. Are you still in the band? Not often enough. The oh, last I know the band kind of uh, journos. You know, we're all very va itinerant. We moved around, and everybody moved. We should. Yeah. We should. It would be great. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Chris. I am too. Want to join? Can you sing? I can. Back up. I can. I'll do back up. We'll get you in the next time. <laughs> so thank you, Chris. Is there anything else you'd like to add for our Journo Project tribe? Really appreciate it. Nance, yeah, I think we've covered so much today. I'm I'm so happy to have done this with you. Thank, thank you, and such an honour to be uh, joining you. Thank you for taking an interest and love what you're doing. It's so important. Streets of Your Town is produced by Nance Haxton, aka The Wandering Journo, with production assistance from Michael Adams. That's it for this episode. I'm Nance Haxton. Stay up to date with the latest episode of Streets of Your Town by subscribing on your podcast app, on iTunes or SoundCloud. See you next time. <laughs>